Well, happy uh, week after Easter. Uh, it was a joy, man, just great to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ last Sunday. And guess what we're celebrating and remembering today? The death and resurrection of Christ. It doesn't end, right? Continues. So continue on in Acts. I mean, it's not one, uh, one time a year event. This continues. It's why the church gathers on Sundays to, to remember who Christ is, what he's accomplished for us, and that he is alive. So as excited as we were last week, we're just as excited today to gather because we serve a risen Savior. Now, as we dig into this text, a few things came to mind as I was uh, studying through this. Um, if you're familiar with the scriptures, and you're, you're most likely familiar with the story of God redeeming his people uh, from slavery in Egypt throughout the book of Exodus. Now, if you're not familiar, here's, here's kind of a high-level view of what took place throughout the book of Exodus. What we see throughout that book is, is that you have God's people. Uh, you have the Israelites that are enslaved in Egypt, and, and as they're enslaved, they're facing horrific conditions, and as they're enslaved, they're crying out to God to deliver them, okay? God, save us. Well, at the end of chapter 2, we read that God hears their cries, hears their groaning, and, and he remembers the promises and the promise of his covenant that he had made with Israel's forefathers, and so we see in, in Exodus 2, God sending and raising up Moses with this message to go to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. God, let God's people go. Set them free. Now, again, as we read through these, these opening chapters in Exodus, Pharaoh refuses, and so for several chapters later, you see God do mighty works through Moses before Pharaoh to reveal the power of God. And so again, if you're, if you're familiar with this, with this narrative, with this story, you're probably familiar then with the ten plagues, right? So God turns the Nile uh, River to blood. He sends frogs and gnats and flies. He afflicts the Egyptians with painful boils. He sends hail, which destroys Egypt's crops and their livestock, even, even destroys people all culminating in this final plague, the tenth plague that was brought upon Egypt where it took the lives of every firstborn. Now, now if you're, it, it's here even in this, this passage of, 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 the, of, the, of the, uh, the, the taking of the firstborn that we're introduced to what's called the Passover. And Israelites were instructed uh, before this final plague to spread uh, the blood of a lamb over their doorposts at which God would pass over them and not take the life of any of their firstborn. It was a painfully beautiful picture in this moment that pointed to the death of Christ on the cross as the sacrificial lamb. But, but from this moment in, in the Exodus narrative, it was after this tenth plague that finally the Israelites are set free. Pharaoh said, go. So God had delivered them from slavery through incredible works. The Israelites then worshipped God. They praised him for their deliverance. But, but as you know the story of, of the Exodus, they quickly forgot his deliverance. In fact, not soon after, Pharaoh releases them, he changes his mind, and then pursues these Israelites to take them back. So the Israelites see the Egyptians coming for them, and then what do they do? They complain to Moses that God has done nothing but just brought us out so that we would die in the wilderness. It would have been better to be slaves in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. This is what they say to Moses. But it's here that, that God delivers him once again. He delivers him through another mighty act. He parts the Red Sea, all right? And they, they walk through this with, with the sea on either side of them. So they, they witness this, this, this deliverance here. And then they witness with their own eyes the Egyptians chasing after them. And then the water's crashing down on them, killing all who were pursuing them. Once again, they get to the other side and they're grateful to God. But again, the Exodus narrative, we see they, they quickly revert back to complaining, 
They complain about the bitter water that's in the wilderness. And so God miraculously makes the water sweet so they can drink it. They complain about not having any food. And so then God miraculously delivers them bread from heaven to feed them. It's it's the rhythm we see throughout the narrative, the story of Exodus. God delivers, the people rejoice, they quickly forget, and they begin to complain and grumble again when the next trial comes, at which then God responds miraculously. They rejoice, and then they complain again. It's the rhythm throughout the Exodus. You know, I used to read Exodus, and I would get so mad and frustrated with the Israelites. Like, I'd read these stories and be like, what a bunch of fools. Like, what are you, like, what are you guys doing? Like, like, that's what I would think. Like, you, you saw the Red Sea split in half, right? Like, how could you ever doubt? How could you ever doubt his goodness for you? How could you ever doubt his faithfulness? How could you ever doubt that he, that he, that he loves you? I mean, it's like, it's so clear, it's all around you guys. Just like see it. You're seeing it every day. I was so arrogant when I would read through the Exodus until one day God knocked me over with like this Holy Spirit punch and said, that's you. That's you. That's my story. Like if my story were to be written down on paper for all to read of what God has done in my life, how God has continually provided, how he's been so faithful, and, and then you are to read my responses to trials when they come, difficulties when they come, sufferings when they come. You, what, here's what you'd see. Lots of complaining, lots of anxiousness, lots of worry, lots of grumbling. You'd see lots of faithlessness in me too, at which you would look at my story and you'd do the same thing I said. Matt, you fool. You fool. How, how do you not see God's faithfulness all around you? How are, how are you missing his provision? How are you forgetting his care and love for you? Open your eyes. It's all around you. This is all of us. This is all of us. We're, we're forgetful people. We're a forgetful people. And so we need to be reminded continually of God's faithfulness. And praise God he's faithful. <laughs> praise God he's faithful. Praise God he's patient. Praise God he's long-suffering. Praise God he doesn't just just crush us because of our faithlessness, but rather, as we celebrated last week, that Jesus himself was crushed for us so that we could be redeemed. See, see, repetition is actually a very helpful teacher in our lives. And God knows this. It's actually evidence of our our, our creatureliness. It's actually evidence uh, that we need repetition to learn. It's evidence that, that we're finite, that we need reminders because we're forgetful being. We're quick to grumble. We're quick to complain. And so as you heard even this text read this, this morning, you might have had a, a, a case even maybe of deja vu. Like, like if you've been with us through the series of Mark, what you heard read this morning should sound familiar. And, and that's because these, these 26 verses in chapter 8, they mirror or, or parallel Mark chapter 6 and 7. And, and, and let, me, let me show you how. In Mark 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, we, we read of the, the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, what do we read here today in the first nine verses? Jesus feeds 4,000. In Mark 6, 45 through 56, Jesus and the disciples, they take a boat trip across the Sea of Galilee. And here in verse 10, they're doing the same thing. They're getting into a boat and they're crossing to another side of the sea. In Mark 7, 1 through 23, Jesus gets into a confrontation with the Pharisees. 
What do we see here in verses 11 through 13? We see another confrontation with these religious leaders. In Mark 7, 24 through 30, Jesus has this conversation about bread. What truly feeds and satisfies our souls for forever. And we see Jesus in chapter 8 talking with his disciples about the same thing. In chapter 7, verses 31 through 36, Jesus heals a deaf man. Here we are in chapter 8 with Jesus healing a blind man. Chapter 7 ended with this confession, this proclamation among the people that Jesus does all things well. And next week, Pastor Dan's going to be preaching from Mark 8, which will end with this confession from Peter that Jesus is the Christ. These parallel passages here in Mark's Mark chapter 6 and 7 and Mark 8, they're, they're not here by accident. But, but Mark, led by the Holy Spirit, recorded these events very intentionally and very purposefully. In fact, Jesus' life was, was, of course, lived out very, very intentionally. These parallel moments in Jesus' life were done, I believe, I believe, and as Mark records them, to prepare us for what we're going to read through next week of Peter's confession that you are the Christ. We're approaching now the the, the hinge point of Mark's gospel, the the halfway point of Mark's gospel. The first eight chapters have all been about revealing, here's who Jesus is, right? He is the Messiah. He is the one sent from God, and that will culminate in in Peter's confession as, as Jesus being the Christ next week. And then from that point forward, now it's a march. It's a path towards the cross. And so we're seeing, and Mark's revealing to us, do you see who Jesus is? He is the Messiah. He is the great deliverer. He is the redeemer. You see, knowing who Jesus is helps us endure and persevere through adversity, to endure and persevere through trouble and suffering. Knowing who Jesus is keeps us on mission, which is why we need to be reminded of this continually. When we remember who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has accomplished for us on on the cross, then we we remember that we are to live for no other name, that we're to live for no other glory, right? That, that no, other, no other reason than to make much of our great God and King. However, because we are forgetful people, we need reminders. It's why we celebrated the Lord's Supper today, to remind us again and again and again that you are not accepted by God through any work of your own, but through the broken body of Christ and through his blood. We need to continually beat that into our heads every single week as we gather together to encourage one another in that truth because we are so quick to wander. Just like the Israelites in in the wilderness, we are hard-hearted people as well and in need of grace, in need of these constant reminders of God's character, of his sovereignty, and and even often just like the disciples, as we see in Mark 8, that we just don't get it. And we just don't even fully believe in God's total goodness even for us. Like we, we may remember how he's provided in the past, but, but when that next suffering, when that next trial comes, we, we're, we're faced with that, that, that thought again, but will he really provide for us now? Will he really come through now? Will he, all, will he really work things for, for his good and our good now, in the present? Well, yes. Yes, why? Because he's good. That's his character. That's his nature. And he works all things for our good. That's Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But do we rest in that? Do we believe that? Do we hold to that? So we need to be shaped by this text 
today. We need to be reminded today of God's goodness, his faithfulness. We need to be reminded once again that he is sufficient. And we need to repent today and be warned today of of the many ways in which we so often forget, the ways in which we so often fail to see who he is, to see what he is doing, to see what he has done for us, and, and to see who we are in Christ it is by no accident that, that, that we're going through the same rhythm of Christ's life in Mark 8. Not, not, it's by no coincidence, it's by no accident that we're going through the same rhythm of Christ's life that we walked through even just a few weeks ago when we walked through chapters 6 and 7. We need to be reminded once again of Jesus' goodness, his character, because we're prone to forget. We're prone to wander. We need to know and hold deeply within ourselves the confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is our Redeemer. And so I have four reminders for us today. Reminder number one, Jesus is the great provider. Reminder number one, Jesus is the great provider. Look at the first nine verses of Mark chapter 8, page 699 if, if you haven't turned to it yet. Mark says that in those days when again, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And the disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with, with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And so he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took those seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, aside from just a miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, and now here the 4,000 in chapter 8, there's really one main similarity between the two. There's actually one main difference that we could, we could point out, but there's really then one main primary characteristic that it reveals to us about Jesus' mission on, on earth. And so the main similarity that we see uh, between the two feedings in Mark 6 and Mark 8 here is that Jesus has compassion for the people that are around him. And so to remind us of Mark 6, 34, when the crowds came, says when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what do we see here again? The same, the same thing. Verse 2, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. But there's also one main difference as, as well. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 was done primarily among a, a Jewish crowd. Then here, the feeding of the 4,000 is done primarily among a Gentile crowd. And so what's the one thing that then this is revealing to us about Jesus' mission? What's revealing to us between these two feedings, we're seeing that he is for all people. He's for all people, all people groups, all nations. That Jesus loves the, the Jewish people, and so should we. And that Jesus loves all the other tribes and languages and nations, and so should we. Jesus is for all people. That he's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who has come to be the Savior of the world. 
And so we're reminded here once again of the great provision of Jesus for all people when all else seems hopeless. Because the disciples' response here is, is different than it was with the, with the feeding of the 5,000. And so in, the, in that feeding, in Mark 6, uh, the, the disciples begin to look kind of internally. Uh, the disciples kind of look in their kind of snarky response to Jesus. They, they kind of look at like their resources. And they ask Jesus, okay, so we've got 5,000 plus women and children in that feeding, so there's more, more than likely twelve to 15,000 people there. And so they're looking and saying, well, there's, there's towns around, there's places we can go to get food, but, but Jesus, we need like 200 denarii, which is like about seven to eight months worth of living wages to, to buy enough food to, to feed all the people back in Mark 6. But they're still looking kind of internally. Okay, so here's our options. Here's what we can do. Here's, here's kind of the resources we have. And so Jesus, are, you want us to go into town and buy food for everyone. But, but here it's different. And you can tell by, tell by their response. Like in this response here in Mark 8, they, they don't have any resources. They don't have any options before them to go and, and try and find food. Right? They, there's nothing that they could do in this moment. They, they said they, they were in a desolate place. There was nothing around them. In fact, Jesus said, listen, if we send them away, the people are going to faint on the way because there's nothing close. So there's no close towns. There's no villages. There's no resources whatsoever where this, this large crowd was. And so the disciples in this moment understand and they realize we are powerless and hopeless. There's nothing we can do, Jesus. And so their response to Jesus here wasn't necessarily one of unbelief, but, but it really was just one of, of, of a lack of resources. And so they were saying, Jesus, we can't do anything here to feed these people. You're going to have to step in. You're going to have to step in and be the provider. And that's exactly what we see Jesus do. He provides when all else seems hopeless. See, that's a good reminder for us. We, we may think we're self-sufficient. We may think we've got our life all put together. We may think that we can handle anything that comes our way on ourselves, right? We may think our intellect or our resources or our skills are enough to provide, but we need to remember that we are absolutely helpless, powerless, apart from the grace of God. We need to be reminded of Jesus' words in John 15 when he says, I am the vine, you're the branches, right? So, so even there, camp out on that. I'm the vine, you're the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We have nothing. He has everything. And everything that we do say we have is only ours because he has given it to us. He's divine. We're the branches. Remember that. See, the, the quickest way here for you to evaluate whether or not your dependence is upon Christ, whether or not you are, you are the branch attached to the vine the quickest way to evaluate that is to evaluate maybe two things. One is your, your Bible intake. The second would be, what does your prayer life look like? I mean, what's the, what do those two things look like? If you would say it's anemic, if, it, if you would say it's barely existent, then that's, that's revealing that you are depending on yourself. You are not, you are not abiding in Christ Right? You, you cannot say that then you're resting in the sufficiency of Christ as your great provider if you are never hearing from him in his word and never crying out to him for your help. 
And what do we see happen here to those who depend then upon Jesus to provide? What do we see happen to, to people who, who understand and grasp that, that Jesus is divine? They're the branch that apart from them they can do nothing. Well, we see in verse 8 that they ate and were satisfied. What a picture that is to those who remain in Christ. They're satisfied. It means that he gives us what we need for our good and his glory. So we need that reminder this morning that he is our, our great provider. Reminder number two, though, is that Jesus is the true sign from heaven. Jesus is the true sign from heaven. We see this in, the, in verses 11 through 13 when it says that this interaction, this confrontation that he has with the, with the Pharisees. It says that the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, went to the other side. Now you may be thinking when you, when you see this interaction and see what uh, the Pharisees were asking for, you, would, you may look at them and say, what are you talking about? Like he's giving you all types of signs. He just fed 4,000 people with, with seven loaves of bread. Right? Jesus has been given all types of signs through all these miracles. Like, What are they talking about here that, that they want a sign so that they would believe? But, but remember, what, what's been the interaction? What's been the confrontation these religious leaders have had with Jesus? Well, if you remember back in Mark 3, these Pharisees had, had accused Jesus' miracles of being powered by Satan. Right? They're, so they're not neglecting these, these, these mighty works. They're seeing them being done. But they're just attributing the, the power of these works being done. They're just saying this is just being done through dem- demonic influence. So they're coming in and, okay, yeah, this is demonically influenced, Jesus. If you really are from God, give us another sign. See, see the Pharisees are coming to Jesus with their minds already set. They're already set. They don't believe. They were not going to believe. No matter what he was to say, no matter what he was to do, They're not asking Jesus here to validate his ministry. They're not coming with an openness of heart and mind to say, I want to believe, I'm just struggling. They're saying, you aren't this. In fact, what you're doing is demonic, and so give us another sign to to show us who you are. They're trying to discredit him here. And so Jesus sighs this, this, this deep sigh and groan, and basically what he's saying in his response to these Pharisees is, listen, I'm not gonna play that game. I'm not gonna play your game. In essence, what he was saying is, listen, Pharisees, religious leaders, if you want a sign, read the scriptures. Read the scriptures, and you'll see who I am. Read the scriptures, and you'll see who has sent me. If you read the scriptures that you say you know, that you say you love, you read through those, you look at me, you'll say, there's no doubt. This is who you are. I mean, do you remember how Jesus began his ministry as recorded in in Luke 4? Luke records Jesus begin his ministry by going into the, the temple. And as he walks into the temple, the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him to read. And so he, he opens up the scroll and he goes to this, this passage in, 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 in Isaiah. He goes to Isaiah 61 and he reads these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke records that after Jesus read this passage from Isaiah, that he rolled up the scroll, he sat down, 
and that, that all the eyes in the room were on him. So you can kind of read, like it's just quiet. What's he going to say? What's going on here? And Luke says Jesus' words were simply this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you ever want to talk about the first mic drop moment, that was it. Today, what you just read, what you know of the prophet Isaiah, what he proclaimed and prophesied, it happened right now. Drop the mic and leave. Right? Like, I mean, that's, that is what just happened He's saying, he's drawing their attention to say, look to God's word. It's pointing to me if you would just open and see. Do you remember what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? He's walking on this road and he enters into this conversation with these two guys who are, who are talking amongst themselves about all that had just taken place that, that weekend in Jerusalem with Jesus' death. And, and they're trying to come to grips with what is going on. And, and so Jesus uh, enters into this, this conversation with them. They don't recognize Jesus, and they're failing to understand. They, they thought, again, Jesus was going to be this conquering king who came in, overthrew Rome. And so they're like, man, he's dead. And now we're hearing reports that he's alive. And so there's just this massive confusion with these two guys of what is going on. And, and what's Jesus do with these two guys on this road to the village of Emmaus? So it says in Luke 24, 27, says that beginning with Moses, meaning the first five books of, of our Old Testament, and with all the prophets, says he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He, he, he opens this, the, God's word and says, this is all pointing to me. This is all pointing to who I am. See, the, the, the demand for a sign from these religious leaders was this, this expression of unbelief. They were unwilling to see Jesus as revealed in the Word. They didn't want to accept it. In fact, William, William Lane in his commentary says that their demand for a sign represents the attempt to understand the person of Jesus within categories which were wholly inadequate to, to contain his reality. He says the call for a sign is a, is a denial of the summons to radical faith, which is integral to the gospel. Jesus rejects the way of signs as fundamentally wrong because it precludes personal decision and response to the word of revelation. See, Jesus calls us to, to radical faith in him. We either believe in him or we don't. Now, I don't believe it's a blind faith. I believe there's mountains of evidence for the resurrection of Christ, which leads us toward him. But Christ, in the end, calls us to faith in him, to believe in him. In fact, Scripture says that we are justified by faith. What, what brings peace and reconciliation to our lives with God is, is justification by faith in Christ and Christ alone. This is Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith, not through signs. We're, we're not justified. We don't come to faith and belief in, 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 in God if we're just saying, well, if God would just do this, then I'll believe. Right? If he, if he gives me, if, if I'm going to pray this one prayer, and if he gives this, me this one thing that I'm asking for, then I'll believe in him. That's, that's doing what the Pharisees do. Give us a sign, God. Show us who you really are. That's really coming to him with an attitude already of unbelief. If he gives me what I'm asking for, then I'll turn to him. No, what Jesus calls us to is to say, no, I have faith in you. That I, I see the word and I see you and this is who you are. I believe. 
That's God-given faith. That's a spirit-empowered faith. We look to Jesus and say, you're all I need to believe. You are the true sign from heaven. You are the son of God. That's reminder number two is the true sign from heaven. Reminder number three, Jesus is the all-satisfying bread for our souls. In verse 14, Jesus and the disciples are on a boat and and the disciples, mo- most likely in their haste to get away from the Pharisees, only, they only brought one loaf of bread with them. After they had seven baskets full, right? After Jesus just fed the 4,000, they, they get away with, with one loaf. And so uh, you can just kind of picture a little bit, maybe a little embellishment here, but you can just see them on, the, on that boat, and there's probably a little bit of finger pointing, uh, a little bit of blaming, right? You can see Peter standing up and be like, all right, this was your job, and why didn't you bring more for us? Right? Whose job was it to bring food? Right? There's 12 of us plus Jesus. How is, how is one loaf going to feed all of us? Isn't it interesting that they didn't just go to Jesus asking him to multiply it? Right? They literally just witnessed it. Right? Hey, we only have one loaf. Ah, what are we going to do? We just saw Jesus feed 4,000 with seven loaves. Again, what's happening here on this boat? They're forgetting who's on the boat with them. They're forgetting who's on the boat with them. You know, though, before we mock or chide the disciples, again, we really need to recognize that that's us. That that we're often so slow to understand. So slow to see what what God is doing among us. We're often so hard-hearted like like they were. They, like us, so often struggle with, with, with recognizing who we believe in. And that's where Jesus chimes in in verse 15. I always love how Jesus always just kind of drops a little nugget, and just kind of backs away, see how they deal with it, and then comes in. I just love how he teaches. Because he chimes in as they're discussing and probably finger-pointing and blaming and, and probably fighting over the one loaf. And, and he just jumps in and says, okay, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. All right, just drop that. And then he kind of, just, he kind of shrinks back. What are they going to do with it? And, and so he's saying, guys, what did we just see with the Pharisees? Now, this is what he's trying to draw them to. Like, guys, what did, you, what did you just see in this encounter that I just had with these Pharisees? You saw unbelief, right? They're coming to me with unbelief. And so he's, he's, he's seeing them struggle over this one loaf of bread, and he's coming to them, and he just drops this little truth nugget in there and says, guys, don't let the leaven of unbelief creep into your heart. It will destroy you. Remember who I am. Right? Open your eyes to see who I am. But they still don't get it. Because verse 16 says that they just start talking about the fact that they have now no bread. Like, so, so you see the, even the, just where they're, where they're kind of declining, right? At one point, it's like they at least had one, one loaf of bread. Now they're saying, we don't have any bread. I don't have anything here, right? So they're seeing that one is, they might as well not have anything here. And so again, what the disciples are doing, it's like they're not, they're not grasping fully yet who Christ is. And they're thinking temporary, temporal things. They're not thinking eternally. Not one of them stops in that moment when Jesus says that word, those words in verse 15, and says, Jesus, you're right. We just saw what you can do. We just saw your power, your greatness. We know you're from God, we, that you are God in the flesh, and that you're, you're all we need. You're sufficient, not this little loaf of bread that we're fighting over. Not one of them stood up to say, this bread will satisfy us for maybe a moment, but you satisfy our souls for eternity. That's where Christ was trying to draw them to see. Stop fighting over the things that won't satisfy. 
Look at who's on the boat with you. He's trying to draw their hearts, their minds, to see his sufficiency, that he's enough. You, you, you hear it in his questioning, starting in verse 17. Right? Do, do you not perceive or understand? Guys, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves from the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And, and a seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to him, seven. And, and what's he say? Do you not yet understand? Do you not, do you not get this? He's, he's so patiently trying to get them to just connect the dots. Like, like, because when you think of it, why is he drawing their attention to how much bread was left over after each feeding? Right? He doesn't ask them, guys, do you remember that when I fed the 5,000, was everybody satisfied and filled? Yeah. He doesn't ask that. He says, how much was left over after I fed everyone? He, he's asking them, how, many, how much was left over when I just fed the, the 4,000? Why, why is he asking that instead of, do you remember I just fed all these people? Why is he asking how much was left over? It's because he's trying to draw them. He's trying to show them that he gives more than we need. That he is all satisfying. That his grace, his provision is overflowing. His provision is abundant. It's abounding. That our cup overflows with God's grace. What's Paul saying in Ephesians 1? He says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished. That, that word lavished, periseo in Greek, means literally to shower upon, to provide abundantly, to abound, to, to be over and above. To, to, it literally means more than enough. And, he's, and Paul says that his grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Meaning, meaning God doesn't give us just enough grace to be forgiven, but that he gives us so much grace. He gives us not only forgiveness and acceptance with him through Christ, but now he gives us an inheritance that lasts for all of eternity. Right? This, is, this is who we are and what we have in Christ. He is the all-satisfying, overflowing, abounding bread for our souls. Do we believe this? Do we believe what God has said to us through his word? Do we believe when, when Luke says in 137, Jesus says, for nothing will be impossible with God? Do we believe that? Or, or like Paul says in Philippians 4, that I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whether I have a lot or very little, if I have Christ I have all I need, and then some. See, so often, like the disciples here, we're just we're, we're maybe slow to learn that, slow to see that. We, we witness in moments and, 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 and seasons in our life we, the, the goodness of God all around us, but, but still so many of us fail to fully understand and trust in him. Far too often, we look to then the things of this world to satisfy us, only to be disappointed time and time again. So we need to be reminded once again, he is sufficient. He's more than enough for our souls to be satisfied. Friends, if you have not yet tasted and seen the goodness and the sufficiency of Jesus, I invite you to come and find all satisfying eternal life in him. New life, eternal life, comes through repentance and faith.
comes from turning from the things of this world to satisfy us and turning in faith to Jesus as the one supreme treasure of our souls. He is all satisfying. The final reminder, reminder number four for us this morning is that Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. In these final verses, Jesus and the disciples, they enter the town of Bethsaida. It was a town on the, on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was actually where Jesus fed the 5,000. So it's interesting that it's almost as though this rhythm in Mark's gospel is kind of coming full circle to emphasize uh, a, a point. It, it's here that a, a blind man was then brought to Jesus. And you see here the same compassion that Jesus had for the deaf man in Mark 7. But there's a few things that are different in his interaction with him. You know, whereas in Mark 7, the deaf man is, is healed instantly. Right? Jesus says the words be open, and he can hear, and he can hear clearly. But, but the blind man here, do you catch that the, the, the healing here in Mark 8 is, is gradual? Do you see that in verses 23 and 24, that, that Jesus lays his hands on him and then asks, okay, can you see anything? And what's the man say in verse 24? He says, well, I, I can see people, but they're like trees walking. So, so he's saying it, it's, it's not clear. Like, and so it's kind of like this gradual healing. And so then verse 25 says, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and then his sight was restored. It's always good to ask questions when you read Scripture. Good question here is, why the gradual healing? Could he have healed him instantly? Of course. This was not like a hard healing where Jesus like, okay, can you see anything? No, not yet. All right, all right, come on. All right, let's try this again. That's not, that's not happening here. He could, he could have said a word and he could see. So why doesn't he, why doesn't he do that here? He doesn't because he's teaching something to his disciples. What have we just seen in the last 20 or so verses? The disciples are, are slow to see. They're, they're slow to, to, to come to understanding in who he is. But yet, what do we see in Christ? He's, he's slowly bringing them along and helping them to see and understand who he is. Right? He, he's gracious and patient with them as he slowly is opening their eyes to see. And so here you have this blind man and Jesus is showing them, all right, this is kind of like you. Listen, you guys are going to see. You're going to see one day. It's slow. All right, do you see what I'm doing here? You see verse 18 when he's on the boat with them, what's he ask? Having eyes, do you not see? Verse 21, he asks them, do you not yet understand? Right? He's, he's drawing them along. He's trying to open their eyes. He drops those little nuggets of truth for them to kind of think through and wrestle through. And then when they don't get it, okay, let me come in a little bit more and help shape it. This is what Jesus does. He's so patient. And so here we have this blind man who Jesus could have opened his eyes immediately. But he didn't because he was leading his disciples and showing them that spiritual understanding would come gradually. All of this really is, is leading to Peter's confession that we'll get to next week as, as, as Jesus as to Christ, as the Messiah. It's a, it's a moment in Peter's life where he begins to see even more clearly. Right When Jesus says, who do people say I am? Yeah, they're all wrong. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Yes. You're seeing it. You're getting it. But even in that moment, in that confession, they still don't fully grasp because they really won't fully grasp until after the resurrection because when Jesus is arrested, what do they do? They run. They're, they're out of there. What's happening? But they won't come to full sight even until after the resurrection. But even along that path, he's slowly, gradually opening up their eyes to see him for who he is. What's so beautiful about the interaction, this interaction between Jesus and the blind man is we see his patience and steadfast love for us as well. At one point, you and I were blind. At one point, you and I were unable to see the beauty and worth of Jesus. And it was the grace of God that, that
that opened our eyes to see and behold our King and Savior. Even today in our, in our journey toward holiness and Christ's likeness, we're going to stumble along the way. We're not going to be able to, to see even perfectly. We still wrestle through things. We still struggle through things. The remnants of, of sin in our lives still often blind us to fully beholding his glory and beauty. And yet Jesus is patient with us and like with this blind man, he continues to graciously and lovingly open up our eyes to see him more clearly. He never abandons. He never forsakes us. He's with us. And he is sanctifying us. But church, again, where do we see him? I'm going to push this. We see him in his word. If you want to see Jesus, if you want to see him, you've got to feast upon the word of God. This is where he's been revealed to us. Now there's coming a day. It's coming a day. And Lord, come quickly when our faith will become sight. When we will see Jesus face to face. And glorious day that will be. And we should welcome that day and want that day to come. But until that day, we see him as he's been revealed to us through his word. So church, we must abide in him. He's divine. We're the branches. We must be reminded of who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. We must remember who we are apart from him and yet who we are because of him. Think of this great hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Anybody know the next line? I once was blind, or once was lost, sorry, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I want to have us just kind of close our, close our eyes here for just a moment, and just a little, little differently here. I just want us to take a moment here, our eyes closed, and, and just uh, to think and ponder upon the text here. To confess where we need to confess, to repent where we need to repent, to Remind our, our hearts and our minds and our souls of who Christ is, what he has accomplished, and who we are because of him. So would you, would you take a moment to just, in the silence, ponder this, this text from Mark 8, and then I want to close our time here by reading a prayer over us. It's a, prayer, a Puritan prayer of our need for Jesus. And so before I read this prayer over us, let's just meditate, ponder, and let the Spirit work. Hear these words as I I pray this prayer over us. Lord Jesus, I am blind. Be thou my light. Ignorant, be thou my wisdom. Self-willed, be thou my mind. Open my ear to grasp quickly thy spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness remain. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches, may I flee to thy wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be my good shepherd to lead me into the green pastures of thy word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. Thy cross was upraised to be my refuge 
Thy blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Thy death occurred to give me a surety. Thy name is my property to save me. By thee all heaven is poured into my heart, but it is too narrow to comprehend thy love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a slave, a rebel, but thy cross has brought me near, has softened my heart, has made me thy father's child, has admitted me to thy family, has made me joint heir with thyself. Oh, that I may love thee as thou lovest me, that I may walk worthy of thee, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see thy beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of thy spirit in my heart. For unless he move mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. Amen.